Good evening. I want to welcome everybody back for another opportunity we have to worship our Lord God and also enter into another lesson on in His Word. Welcome. See if there's any visitors. Welcome everybody and the visitors. Kind of does go down when our youth are gone, but it's good for them and wouldn't matter if there was 10 or 100 where two or more are gathered and surely God is, is with us. So we take this opportunity tonight to bring another lesson from his word. Tonight I want to take a few minutes and talk about justice. And I can't think of any better earthly justice system in the world than the justice system we have here in the United States. Here in the U.S., our legal system, its foundation is based on liberty and justice. Liberty and justice is also the basis of our free government, which also recognizes the inalienable rights of all its citizens. We are truly blessed to live in a nation whose legal system is based on such things as right to trial by one's peers, where cruel and unusual punishment are prohibited, a system where the accused has the right to an attorney in their defense, a system where a person is innocent until proven guilty, a system where a person is protected from self-incrimination, where you have the right to a speedy trial, where your rights are spelled out and protected by a constitution and a bill of rights. Plus, our rights are also protected by appeals courts, the state and federal Supreme Court systems. We're truly blessed to live in a country that provides both religious freedom and a fair legal system based on the individual rights of all of its citizens. But imagine if. Imagine if you woke up one morning to a judicial system where prosecutors were allowed to investigate you and initiate a case against you with no basis or evidence that you had committed a crime. But not only that, but a prosecutor was able to contact a judge and by simply making an accusation that in his opinion, you might commit a crime. And by doing so, you're now being investigated. But the prosecutor is pursuing charges against you simply because in his opinion, you might commit a crime. Your first thought would probably be this can't be happening, but it is. But this system, this is the system you woke up to. Your first thought might be that you woke up some sort of nightmare. You just keep thinking, how could this happen? You just keep thinking, I haven't done anything wrong. But believe it or not, this backward groundhog sort of day that you woke up in is about to get even worse. You see, unbeknownst to you, it turns out that the prosecutor handling your case actually wasn't able to prove that you did anything wrong. There was no wrongdoing on your part. You were right. You hadn't done anything wrong. Time to celebrate? No, not yet. Because believe it or not, that's only just the beginning. Here's where it gets worse. You see, because you didn't do anything wrong, even though the prosecutor was insisting that you would, now he's upping his game and things are about to get even worse for you. 
Now, because you didn't commit any crime, the prosecutor is now allowed to entrap you into committing a crime. The prosecutor is now telling the judge that if he's allowed to entrap you, that undoubtedly you're going to commit the crime this time. And all this is being done without your knowledge and without you being able to defend yourself. Now, the prosecutor is allowed to use a special division of his own dedicated police force to go undercover and try to entice you to commit that crime, to entrap you, to trick you, to lie to you. And their authority and power and resources are unlimited. They are now able to physically harm you or your family. They are now able to attack your finances, to bankrupt you. They even have unlimited resources to try to bribe you into committing the crime. If they can't get you to do it by yourself, they're going to use every dirty trick in the book to get you to commit that crime and be right there to prosecute you the minute you do. One of the dirtiest tricks they use is to break you down physically, financially, or both, then offer you a substantial bribe if you break down and commit that crime. And all you can think is, there's no way this can be happening. But it is. You see, this isn't a dream. It's actually real, and it's actually happening to you. Just you don't realize it or haven't studied it. So that got your attention? You see, this is the exact system that Satan uses and is using on you right now. And it's the very system that Satan's been using for centuries. I started out saying I wanted to talk about justice, justice, and that's exactly where I'm headed with this. No, not an earthly justice system, but more specifically, eternal justice, the judgment. The judgment each and every one of us will face, everyone. Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu, poor, rich, every race, every color, young and old, we all will face the judgment. It's unavoidable. Some may wish to not deny it. Some may wish to ignore it. Some actually welcome it. But don't let anyone deceive you. We all will face the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. I imagine just about everyone, both Christian and non-Christian, has thought about what this final judgment would be. But unfortunately, most people's ideas and opinions, for some reason, are not based on what Scripture says, which somewhat confuses me because Scripture tells us what the judgment will look like. The Bible is God's Word. And why people refuse to read what God is trying to tell us on the subject, it just simply does not make sense. Scripture tells us but in so many cases, man simply refuses to listen. The judgment, it sounds like a subject that's something that everyone knows all about, right? Well, go look on the internet. Go talk to your neighbors. Talk to some of your coworkers. Even go talk to some of your relatives. And then tell me if it's one of those basic subjects that everyone should know all about, let alone agree about, and agree upon the specifics of the subject. What you'll find out is that opinions and beliefs on this vary just about as much as the number of people that you ask. 
Why? Simply, Satan, evil, our accuser, is the source of confusion on the subject. That's his job, is to confuse, to distort, to lead astray, and then to convict wavering Christian souls. But do not be deceived. Satan is our adversary. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But it's confusing to me that for some reason that there are Christians today that tend to ignore the subject of Satan and his role in this world and the subject of the final judgment. It seems that most of today want to focus more on the subject of God's nature, of love, mercy, grace, and peace, but want to ignore the most destructive adversary we face in the world today. For some reason, we want to ignore the fact that Satan's role in this world is the destruction of your soul. Simply stated, Satan loves every soul that only shows up on Sunday morning, then lives their life for themselves the remainder of the week. Satan's role in this world is to be your accuser, your tempter. His role in this world is to lead you from Christ and sadly into eternal condemnation of your soul. Satan loves it every time there's an ad in the newspaper that says, attend the church of your choice in the religious section. And it's right there next to the coupon for $10 off at dinner at the casino. Or ads on TV telling you how cool it is to drink their beer. Or how trendy and smart people drink their brand of whiskey. Don't be deceived. Satan uses the temptations of this world to try to convict you. Again, Hebrews 9, 7, and is appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Appointed for men to die once. When it comes right down to it, I really don't have any problem accepting that we all have an appointed time to die. We realize we're all not gonna live forever. So I'm not really worried about the appointed part, you know, time to die part. But if we take those last two words, the judgment, then yes, we have something to worry about. But, but fortunately, we have God's word that tells us exactly what to expect in this final judgment and what it will look like. The reason we need to know is that so we will know what God expects of us, so that we will know God's will, so that we can be faithful Christians. Scripture is clear and tells us what to expect. As we will see, this heavenly trial, it's a lot like an earthly trial. It'll consist of a judge, prosecutor, evidence, and a special advocate for our defense. Scripture uses the example of a trial several times in Scripture, much like what you would expect to see again in a modern courtroom today. But Scripture tells us what we can expect, and we're told in Scripture that we will all stand before the ultimate judge. Acts 17.31 says, because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all 
by raising him from the dead. And in Romans 14.10, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And again in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we, for we must all appear before the judge, judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And in this judgment, this trial, God the Father is the judge. Our God and Holy Father, the Creator, he will judge, he will be the judge who will judge everyone based on their faith, obedience, works, and their life as a whole. Because he is the God of perfect righteousness, the God of perfect justice. By the way, those two words, righteousness or righteous and justice, they both come from the same Greek noun. When it's translated from Latin to English, it's translated as justice. When it's translated from German to English, it's usually translated as righteousness, but it's from the same word. So both words are interchangeable and, again, come from the same Greek word. But God the Father is perfect in righteousness and perfect in justice. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Most of the time I use, I like the New King James Version myself, but in this particular verse in Psalm 711, I used the English Standard because of the use of the word indignation. Some of the other translations use the word anger. The translation using indignation more accurately trans it translates and expresses the meaning of this word better. Indignation means a feeling of anger or wrath. So here we read that God feels this anger or wrath against sin every day. The best example I could think of was someone committing a grievous crime against you, like an act of violence against you or a family, one of your family members, an act that cuts you deep to your soul and not just makes you mad, but makes you angry, angers you to your deepest feelings. This is that feeling of indignation. You're not just mad, but you feel wrath. Your desire, punishment, or retribution because of what's been done. Our God, the perfect God of justice, feels indignation every day because he hates every form of sin. David, King David, understood this best, especially after he had the affair with Bathsheba and had her husband killed trying to cover it up. David knew that not only had he sinned, but he also understood the depth of his sin, that he had sinned against God, sinned against the God of perfect righteousness, 
sinned against the God of perfect justice. Psalm 51, 4 reads, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David understood the gravity of his sin. But we must understand that when we sin, we are committing an offense against God. God is the victim of our sins. If God is the God of perfect righteousness, perfect justice, then sin requires justice. Sin requires punishment. Every sin. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Ecclesiastes 12.14 For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or bad. The, Nahum 1.3 Nahum 1, says, the Lord is slow to anger and great to, in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. God the Father, God the, per, the God of perfect justice, the God of perfect righteousness, the guilty will by no means escape the justice of God. Just as we have a judge, we have a prosecutor and then judgment. But just as in the scenario I used at the beginning, this prosecutor is also our accuser day and night. We read this in Revelation 12:10. Says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan is our prosecutor who is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. The book of Job expresses this best especially in chapters one and two. God asked Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Well, let's read what the response of Satan is here in Job 1, 10 through 11. It says, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan here is not only accusing Job, but Satan is accusing Job of something he hasn't even done, but something that Job might do. Satan, Satan's accusations are purely hypothetical, but we read on that God allowed Satan to lay his, on, lay his hands on Job's possession, position and even his family. 
but Job still did not sin. So in Job chapter 2, God brings it up to Satan again. So we read in Job 2, 4 through 5, what Satan says again. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Again, Satan is already accusing Job of what he might do. But this isn't the only example we have of our accuser. In the book of Zechariah, God is giving Zechariah a prophecy or vision of resurrecting the temple worship in Jerusalem. And in chapter 3, we read about the accuser in the vision. Zechariah 3.1 says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Again, Satan is right there ready to accuse Joshua, just waiting for him to sin, but all the while already accusing him. Just like we read earlier in Revelation 12.10, for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down who accused the brethren before God day and night. Yes, in our trial, in this judgment, there is a prosecutor, and he is our accuser. And just like in any trial, there will be evidence. One time, back when I went to college the first time, I had to attend a criminal court case I've taken getting a criminal justice degree at Tahlequah, thought I wanted to be a paralegal. But anyway, mainly because I had to attend this trial was because one of my professors was the defense attorney in the case. So he figured the best way for him not to miss class and for us not to have a free time was for the class to go to him at the trial. And the one thing I remembered the most was at the start of the trial, the prosecutor, who was the district attorney, he wheeled in close to a hundred banker's boxes that were full of paperwork to be submitted as evidence in the case. Partway through, there was a break in the, in the trial for a few days, so we resumed our class time. And I remember, I kept remembering those boxes. And the professor, he went around the class and basically asked each one of us what we thought and have, you know about the case and how we thought it was going. When it was my turn, I pointed out how the district attorney had brought in all those boxes of evidence. And I commented, commented more or less that I felt he had already lost, that the, my instructor had already lost his case right there. <clears throat> well, when the case resumed, <clears throat> along with our class, one of the first things the professor did was he made a movement motion to have all those boxes open to see all the evidence. And they opened every box. Every box had something in it, but not much. And once they were all opened up and gathered together, it probably would have filled 10 boxes. But I use that to emphasize in our trial, 
in that day of judgment, there will be evidence brought out against us. We read this in the book of Revelation 20, chapter 20, verses 12 through 13. It says, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was opened, which, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in them, and death and Hades delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Each one of us has a record of what we've done. Every deed that you or I have ever done is recorded. But right there in the book of Revelation, it tells us that when we face the judgment, books will be opened and we'll be, we will be judged by what's recorded in those books. But when Satan was accusing Job, Satan, he didn't point to Job's deeds. Satan was making just hypothetical accusations of what he felt Job might do, not what Job actually did. But on that day of judgment, Satan won't be making any hypothetical threats or accusations. Books will be opened which have in them recorded deeds we have done, evidence. But this evidence, unlike evidence in an earthly trial, this evidence will contain not just our physical actions and the physical things we've done, it will contain much more. Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 36, but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. So we read not just our actions, but our careless, hurtful words, criticisms, gossip, all we'll give an account for in that day of judgment. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, there's more. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So even the hidden things will be revealed. Bad motives, selfishness, jealousy, all the hurtful things in our heart, all will be revealed. But thankfully, as Christians, we have someone on our side someone that knows the workings of Satan, our accuser, our prosecutor. Sin is the product of Satan. Sin exists because of the temptation that Satan introduced into this world in the book of Genesis. Christ knows that sin and temptation are of the devil. 1 John 3, 8 says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. As Christians, we know we have an advocate, someone to defend us in that day of judgment. 
if we love him, follow his commandments, if we do his will, then he is our advocate because through Christ's death, he overcame sin. Hebrews 2.11 says, Inasmuch them as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Our advocate, Christ. He can have compassion if we abide in his word and in his commandments. Because Jesus came as flesh and experienced sin, but yet did not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, as Christians, by following his will, abiding in his commandments, we have an advocate on our side who understands, who understands us and who understands our struggles. If you've ever had to hire an attorney for whatever reason, one of the things that you'll find out is they need to know everything. Not just the main points concerning your case, but also about you, if you expect them to adequately defend you. And in Christ, we have a high priest we can relate to because of our weaknesses, if we will do his, good, his will. Gary Massey, in one of his sermons concerning the judgment, whose outline I borrowed part of, modified, but he relayed a story about a case a friend of his was handling that's stuck with me, stuck with me since I've heard it, but it's concerning this friend of his law, who is a lawyer, his client. Mr. Massey, he's, he's not just a lawyer, but he also teaches uh, some with World Video Bible School, and he's, a, he's also a preacher. He recounted an experience from this fellow attorney the one that had told this story that he told him. This lawyer had recently taken a client who was pre-teen, pre had had an, uh, an accident or a procedure that left her blind but it was from a mistake from a medical provider. The girl, now a teenager, had hired, the parents had hired him to help settle her case. So the lawyer, needing to get some basic facts about his new client, went to the girl's home to get a background on the girl and how her injuries affected her life, affected how, every, everything that she did, but also how it had changed her life. So the lawyer had gotten to the girl's home shortly before she was to get home from school. The girl's father, was they were sitting visiting. When the girl got off the bus coming home from school, as the girl got off the bus and made her way inside, she dropped her books on the kitchen table, went in, got something to drink, and went straight back outside. She had gone outside and sat in a car that was sitting in the driveway. After several minutes, of not knowing where the girl had gone, the lawyer finally asked the father where she, where she had gone to. The father took him over to the window and told him to look outside. There was the young girl sitting in the car 
moving the steering wheel back and forth, looking in the back seat. And the lawyer confused. He was confused and he asked the father what the girl was doing. The father quietly said, she's driving the car she'll never drive and she's talking to the friends she used to have. But that's when the lawyer knew exactly how to tell that girl's story. Hebrews 4.15, we read, says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Christ knows and understands temptation. Jesus knows our story, and he knows how to defend us. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But to understand that thought fully, we need to back up a couple of verses. Modern times, we put in the breaks, man did, for chapters, and these used to be written just consecutively through. But if we back up to 1 John chapter 8, chapter 1, excuse me, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We all sin. But if we follow his word and his commandments, just like in verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, one main point, we are all guilty of sin, but through baptism and faithfulness to his word, verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he will, we will be forgiven. But if sin requires punishment, how can it be a righteous, how can it be righteous for Jesus to forgive us of our sins? Romans 3, 23 through 25 says, For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. <clears throat> you see, again, we all sin. The evidence is there. We have an accuser who's against us, accusing us day and night before God and not being honest about those accusations either. But we have an advocate on our side who became our propitiation. His shed blood on that cruel cross of Calvary. We have no defense, but we actually have the perfect defense, the blood of Christ. You see that word propitiation? It means that our punishment 
has already been paid for by another. Paid for by Jesus' sacrifice on that cross. 1 John 2.2 2 says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The idea of propitiate is to atone for, to satisfy. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He took our punishment. Our punishment is deserved. Justice still must be paid. But simply that punishment has already been carried out on our behalf. Colossians 2.14 says, Having wiped away, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. John chapter 19, verse 30 says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the spirit. I transferred, transferred or whatever, moved into that point rather quickly, but it's to make a point. The word that's translated, it is finished. It comes from a single word. And that word actually comes from the world, the accounting world. And it was often used on tax records of the time. It means paid in full. So when a tax record was paid up, it would be marked with that word paid in full. The last words Jesus spoke on this earth was for our benefit. It is finished, paid in full. 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Jesus made that offer to defend you and I, to pay our debt with his blood. But in return, he demands that you commit the rest of your life to him, to live according to his word, to live according to his commandments. Yes, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but if we are faithful, to confess our sins, he is righteous to forgive us our sins. He is our propitiation. If you have needs, prayers of the church, or if you've made that decision to turn your life over to Christ and be baptized for the remission of your sins, we want to extend that offer to you at this time as we stand and sing.